welcome to Womankind. I'm here in episode 14 with uh, my guest, Kate Sinatra Butler, who is the founder and CEO of Dignity Matters, and Kim Spellman, who is the director of Dignity Matters in the state of Georgia. Dignity Matters is a nonprofit organization based in, you guys are based in Wayland, Massachusetts? Yes, we are. Yes. Um, and they provide homeless women and women in need with undergarments and feminine hygiene products. Um, so ladies, welcome. Thank you. It's Thank great you to so be much here. for having us. Um, so I, I just gave the, the briefest explanation, but I'll let, you know, each of you take over a little bit here. So what is Dignity Matters? Well, we are a, a nonprofit organization, grassroots organization. We are all volunteers. Um, Dignity Matters started last year, um, so we are still very much a startup. Um, we started in, as you said, in Wayland, Massachusetts. We are growing and currently uh, Kim is overlooking our chapter in Georgia and slowly we are spreading to other states. Um, I'm very excited to say that very soon we'll be opening a new chapter in, in, in Rhode Island, in Providence. Um, and yay, what, yay, yay, amazing. Yes, yes, <laughs> I'm very happy about that. It's something we've been working on slowly. Um, so it's good to, uh, I guess, spread our footprint and so on. There's a lot of women in Rhode Island that need our help. So whatever we can do. Um, so you asked me what we do. As you said, we collect feminine hygiene products, bras and underwear. We collect them, we sort them, and we distribute them to homeless shelters, public schools, and after-school programs to help homeless women and schoolgirls and teens, um, you know, have more dignified life. So you are hearing from Kate just now. Um, and so, Kate, I read a little bit of this on your website. Um, why was Dignity Matters formed? Well, it's, it's not definitely something I planned. <laughs> um, it, 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 it happened. Um, I was um, actually um, asked uh, in Boston at Copley Square last year for a tampon by a young woman. And that was something unexpected and kind of uncomfortable even. Um, as you can imagine, we, it's not something we ask other people for. We can buy our supplies, we have our supplies. So the only way someone would ask you for that is if they can't get it and they can't buy it. Um, and a couple of days later, I had an interview on NPR. Um, there was a woman uh, from Indiana, I believe, talking about this huge need for feminine hygiene products at shelters. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I've ever heard about before. So I started doing my research slowly um, I called shelters in Rhode Island and in Massachusetts to find out more. And indeed, indeed, um, everywhere, um, everyone was telling me about this big problem, this overlooked need. Um, you know, different shelters have different needs. But generally what I found out that feminine hygiene products in particular are needed everywhere. Because okay. it's not on top of our minds to go to shelters and deliver um, tampons and pads. It's not something we talk about around our dinner table. It's not a nice topic. Uh, um, <laughs> and certainly not something that most men would be concerned about. Um, so that immediately excludes half of the society. 
although we did have many men who supported us, but generally it's not something that people think about and talk about. Um, it's, it's an overlooked need. So when you were going into these various homeless shelters, um, I mean, I imagine for them that was something that they had thought about a lot and something that they really were aware of. Um, and I imagine that a lot of people in our society are not aware of this need. But was, was that the case that in the actual homeless shelters, they were like, oh, thank you so much. This is something that we've been really grappling with for a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it was even more surprising to me that no one else does it, at least in our state. No one else does it in New England. And as far as I know, in most of the states mm-hmm. um, in the US, there are some other organizations trying to help and doing a wonderful job. But this issue is so large um, that we need any support we can get. Um, it is in the circles of people working in philanthropy and helping in shelters. This is not news. They know about it. But in general community, people don't know about it. Women don't know about it. They never heard about it. Women are very often surprised to hear that shelters don't provide feminine hygiene products. Um, some people are surprised to hear they are not covered by um, food stamps or SNAP benefits, as we call them now. Um, and they even question us. How come this is happening? And I guess I'm not surprised because this was my reaction at the beginning. Wow. That's that you definitely led into some other questions that I was going to ask, which are, what are some, some misconceptions here? And you, you definitely covered that. Um, and so getting a little bit more specific. So what communities specifically does dignity matters serve? And Kim, you can jump in at any point. <laughs> sure. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the communities that we've been serving for the last six months, and then um, Kim can fill in. But the idea was to start helping homeless women. Um, homeless women have very little services available to them. That's what I keep hearing in homeless shelters all the time. In fact, I even hear from men who are directors at shelters that women get much less than men in terms of the services and much less than children, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so homeless women were at the center of what we were doing and we've been delivering to shelters in Metro West, Cambridge, Boston and around. Um, but very quickly, we've realized that the need is not just at homeless shelters, but also at schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this was probably even more of a surprise to me. Um, I never realized uh, that public schools and after-schools programs for um, impoverished kids and kids in impoverished areas, I should say, or living below the poverty line, would have such problem with getting those items. And in fact, they don't have them. Now we know that. We visited tens of schools in Massachusetts. We spoke to directors, uh, superintendents, nurses at schools. And um, they all tell you that nurses at schools buy products themselves. And if they don't buy them, the girls at schools don't have them. Mm -hmm. And the result is they skip school. 
So to boost school attendance um, and help really girls stay at school and break the, the cycle of poverty, we worked very hard to enter schools and to start delivering products to schools. Um, and less than two weeks ago, we've met with a wonderful organization called Katie's Closet um, out here, out of Massachusetts. Um, it's an organization that um, has been started about six years ago. Um, and what they do, their business model is very smart. We've been very impressed with them. They open closets, actual physical spaces at schools um, okay. where kids can go and get help with necessities, clothes, um, you know, backpacks, uniforms, shoes. Um, and that includes hygiene products and feminine hygiene products and underwear. But again, one of the items that they don't have enough and they ask us for help with was feminine hygiene products um, and bras and underwear. Why? The same as always, people just don't donate those items. Okay. Doesn't matter which organization it is or where the support goes. So through Katie's Closet, we will be um, delivering products to schools in New Hampshire um, and Massachusetts. Currently, uh, Boston Public Schools is opening many closets, working on it right now to be ready for September. And all those closets will be equipped with Dignity Matters hygiene products and underwear, which is wonderful news. We will be able to through Katie's Closet as our distribution partner, we'll be able to reach thousands of school kids uh, and youth. So that's the news. <laughs> and, we are very, and we are very excited really, about it. And, and really, when you think about how a, a woman's self-esteem is formed, how she has really developed a sense of identity and confidence, it's in those teenage years. So it's one of the most exciting developments that we've had um, with the organization partnering with Katie's Closet to have the ability to help teens, you know, at, at a younger age develop their confidence and sense of pride and have a positive body image. Absolutely. And um, for girls, having no access to feminine hygiene products is a deal breaker. Okay. Um, I mean, honestly, this is something that you hear about in like impoverished and third world countries where, you know, yeah. the week that a woman has her period, she's not able to, you know, leave the house or leave the huts. And this is something that I think most people in the United States can't imagine as something that happens here. But as you guys have illustrated, it definitely is something that does happen. And yeah. that's the whole point of your organization to make sure that it doesn't happen. Absolutely. Well, um, just a couple of statistics for you, um, something that always speaks to me. Um, when you think about homeless people in the state of Massachusetts as an example, uh, we're lucky to be a wealthy and progressive state. And yet, um, the number of people experiencing homelessness um, and, and housing instability uh, remains very high and it's growing. Um, according to some numbers um, that, that we use on our website from 2015 from the U.S. Department of Housing um, and Urban Development, um, there were over 21,000 homeless people um, in 2015 um, 
at any given night in January or February. Oh my gosh. Um, that's that's a number. Yeah, 20, 21,000 people in a, not a very big state. And in the same year, public schools, by the way, in Massachusetts, that's elementary, middle, and high schools, were also able to identify and serve over 21,000 students who are experiencing homelessness. Well, that's your 10,000 schoolgirls on average going to school homeless. 10,000 girls who certainly do not have access to those products at home. And among those girls, which is very surprising to me, were not only schoolgirls that were living in motels and hotels, um, hostels, but also girls who were um, awaiting foster care, who were unaccompanied by parents or actually any adults, and also girls who were unsheltered, meaning sleeping in parks and um, campgrounds and cars. Um, so those girls certainly come to school unprepared, unwashed very often, without warm clothes in winter, uh, without hygiene products, feminine hygiene products. I don't even mention underwear because that's a luxury. And hopefully those girls will be able to access some of the products um, through Katie's closets and our direct deliveries to after-school programs and feel a bit better about themselves. Definitely. Um, my next question for you guys is kind of a, a broad question, but how your organization has been up and running since, what, 2016? Yes. At this point? June um, of 2016. Okay, so what have you accomplished so far? And I think this is a pretty lengthy list. <laughs> <laughs> it is truly a remarkable what uh, Dignity Matters has been able to accomplish. Um, Kate literally started the organization um, by herself with no help. And um, we have grown very fast in the state of Massachusetts. And as we mentioned, we've started to spread to other states. That's correct. And um, we, I think we, we, we were overwhelmed with the positive response from the community. At the end of the day, nonprofits only exist because people support them. So wonderful women and men alike, but mostly women, uh, you know, raise their hands to help volunteering, collecting, organizing drives, going with us to shelters, doing all that groundwork without which we wouldn't be able to exist. Um, so our very modest goal for the first you know, six months of operations was to collect about 30,000 products. Uh, I felt pretty good about that. And we, um, <laughs> we've concluded at 125,000. Oh, amazing. So that's okay. a lot of product. Um, yeah. It still, it still doesn't cover the need because the need is so big. But right. it is a lot of product. We are hoping and preparing for another statewide drive in fall. Um, hopefully with the support of community, um, we will be able to achieve similar results or better. Um, so... Yes, so this, that's what we've done, and um, we've delivered our products to, I believe, 12 different shelters. 
um, 11 after-school programs, two schools so far, with another about 40 schools scheduled for the next month. Um, and few few more new um, homeless shelters, which we'll be visiting in a couple of weeks. So um, that's quite a lot of women, but we hope for more. <laughs> yeah, there's always room for more. Absolutely. So what other, so you're based in Massachusetts and that has been like the primary area that you have reached. Um, what other areas have you reached in the country? Well, Kim can tell you a little bit more about our operations in Georgia. Okay. In Georgia, um, we are just still in the launch process, and I'm trying to recruit some team members in other parts of the state because Georgia is a bit of a larger state. But important to know about Georgia, um, more than 75,000 people are homeless at some point during the year in my state of Georgia. In Atlanta, um, specifically, it is one of the poorest cities in the U.S. for children. Um, so when I think about the number of teenage girls there that are in such a need, you know, and that I'm physically four hours away from them, so I'm really looking to continue to expand both here in Savannah, but then also especially in Atlanta. Um, and, and as I continue to grow and, and add, get a little bit of help, we're really aspiring to match the efforts of our sisters in the state of Massachusetts. Yes, and um, through Katie's Closet, we will be able hopefully soon to reach nine schools in New Hampshire. Um, they are all located in Nashua and Hudson. Um, and the new chapter in Providence is opening on the 23rd of August. So uh, hopefully <laughs> uh, we will very quickly grow there too. Um, so that's kind of, that's where we work and that's what we will focus on for this and next year. But certainly we are always open and we welcome support from everywhere. And we always welcome, you know, to opening new chapters <laughs> at the so end. I have, so I, you know, I'm here recording in Buffalo, New York, and I'm listening to this and what goes into starting a new chapter or getting a new state involved? Well, it takes, um, it, it, the most important is to find the right person at the end of the day. Um, it's all about the, com you know, your commitment, uh, your belief in our mission and vision um, and ability to mobilize other women. Mm -hmm. um, as, 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 as an organization, we support everyone with marketing, which right now we are working on really hard and should be ready for our fall drive and um and of course the entire governance piece but at the end of the day it all comes to collections collections mm -hmm. collections uh reaching out to community reaching out to all types of organizations companies religious institutions and so on and getting the product in so um we open to have a new chapter in New York, and in fact, New York has been very supportive uh, for Massachusetts. We get a lot of packages and donations coming from New York, so thank you very much for that. Um, I can imagine it's it's a problem in New York too. Uh, it's, it's a problem Definitely. everywhere, uh, yeah. as far as we can say. So, absolutely open to to that idea. 
<laughs> All right. So, you know, you may have some people who are listening who are getting inspired right now. Yeah, pick up a um, phone and call us. <laughs> <laughs> so as for the two of you, did you, how did you two meet each other? And how did this come about where, where Kim is now running the chapter in Georgia? Well, it's actually really a, it's a funny story. I have, I grew up in the Boston area in Reading, Massachusetts, and then um, about 14 years ago, I left Massachusetts, moved to Florida, and then just four years ago here in Savannah, and my brother is um, a general contractor in Massachusetts and lives in Kate's hometown, Mm -hmm. and when he met Kate and they had developed a friendship, he called me and said, I I'm working with the most amazing woman, and I just know that you have you have to get in contact with her. I know that you are going to really connect with the mission that she has, and this project, this organization she's developing is amazing. And so sure enough, one phone call with Kate, and, and that's really all it took. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um, Kim is an example of a perfect chapter leader because she hit the ground running. She's independent. Um, she, she can do it on her own, and um, this is the sort of woman woman we we are looking for for every state in this country. I think you guys will get there. I think you will. <laughs> I think it can happen. I believe it. I believe it too. <laughs> so this kind of leads into the question: What is your ultimate mission or vision for Dignity Matters? Well, ultimately, our vision is, is, is a world where all women, schoolgirls and teens, are, are, are treated with respect and they can manage their period with dignity. Okay. Um, that's our vision. Um, our, and at the end of the day, feminine hygiene products should be accessible, should be available just the same way um, the toilet paper is, and for actually similar reasons, cleanliness and hygiene. So if we're able to work with our legislators, work with our representatives, um, and convince them to champion our cause and have free feminine hygiene products at schools and in public places, potentially also shelters and prisons because it's a problem, mm-hmm. um, that would sort out this problem this entire issue it would help with school attendance it will help with absenteeism it would help uh, with breaking that uh, cycle of poverty as I've mentioned before and at the end of the day it would help the economy because we have a lot of people slipping back into poverty Uh and um, we need to stop that vicious cycle so you brought up an interesting point. So I'm I'm assuming that all homeless shelters do have a supply of toilet paper. No? Is that an incorrect assumption? I would say that most do. Yes. And is, and is that something that is donated or purchased by a shelter? I think it's probably both, mostly purchased. <sighs> I don't I cannot imagine having toilets without a toilet paper. And in fact, homeless women use toilet paper a lot um, right. and other even less sanitary uh, ways okay. to deal with their periods, such as socks and plastic bags. Um, but 
some states moved on with working on a change of legislation to have okay. free feminine hygiene products. Um, in fact, New York is the wonderful state <laughs> where free feminine hygiene products are now available at schools, I believe, in the state of in the city of New York. And there is a pro- there is a bill proposed uh, for the same to happen in the entire state. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can emulate that in Massachusetts, that would sort out the issue. And hopefully, Dignity Matters would be out of business because, believe or not, that's our end goal. <laughs> that, is, that is the goal. <laughs> that is I the mean, goal. I think I that should be the right. that should oh, be the goal of every nonprofit at the end right. of the day. Right. Definitely. I was going to say absolutely and echo Kate's sentiments. That is the, the pie in the sky goal that we'd all should have. <laughs> well, I guess I was just trying to make the equivalency between toilet paper and feminine products. Like you just would never imagine a bathroom that didn't have toilet paper and you shouldn't have to imagine a bathroom that doesn't have feminine products. They're just, they, they should be equal. And I know that's Absolutely. what I'm to work on, and it just it, it baffles me. Same here. And you can imagine, like, I think for me, um, I always, I actually always equate it to this great scene in the movie The Hurricane uh, when this legal team is trying to decide whether it's worth, worth the risk to pre- present this evidence. And it's really, the idea is once you're presented with this information, you can't look away. You can't. Ignore now that you think, my gosh, all these women, all these teens are going without. All of these people are living in our society without dignity. And that's a basic human right, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So at this point, I'd like for you guys to just let our listeners know how they can get involved, how they can donate, what are some ways. Um, if they're interested either on a small scale or a large scale to get involved with Dignity Matters? Oh, I'll start. It's Kate. Um, we are, as I've mentioned already a couple of times, we are preparing for the fall drive. It's going to be our second big push in the state of Massachusetts and Providence. We welcome people to join us also in Georgia and New Hampshire. Uh, we are hoping for 200,000 products plus. That's a lot of product. It means hundreds definitely tens of people need to work on organizing collection drives in their clubs, schools, churches. Um, So if you are one of those people who would like to help us uh, empower other women and really bring some some dignity back, get in contact with us and we will provide you with everything necessary um, so you can organize a drive. Um, I was very surprised to see how the drives unfolded in spring. In some cases, women just were able to collect thousands of products just in their small communities with friends and families, organizing small events, bra parties. <laughs> and I saw that on your website. I like that idea, yes, bra party. <laughs> they were very popular. Um, so everyone can help. Um, very popular, um, very popular way of giving is our Amazon wish list, mm-hmm. uh, because you you know it's a very economical way of donating. You don't pay for shipping. The product comes directly to us. And by the way, Georgia has its own um, Amazon wish list, so mm-hmm. you can send the product. 
Yeah, so you can send a product to Georgia, or you can send a product to Massachusetts, wherever it's closer. Um, and we immediately distribute that product now to schools or um, homeless shelters. And I would say finally, just raising awareness. It's very important. Whether you talk to other people, whether you visit our Facebook page and post and repost, or just talk to people about it, it's going to help. Um, one, one thing that I did want to mention, if now might be a good time, is we do have, um, if people are kind of, well, I don't have really any time to volunteer, I may want to not want to take a big initiative to, to do this, it is going to be World Homeless Day on October 10th. Um, so even if it's just um, sending an email to your coworkers and say, hey, it's World Homelessness Day, let's all bring in a a package of tampons or a box of pads for the women in our local community. You know, we'll be able to help you get those collections to the right places. Um, and I think it's a great way to take a small baby step in kind of diving into the Dignity Matters pond. Great idea. Um, one more question. Once people do get involved and people do donate, where um, do those items go, particularly to places in Boston, or um, is it just kind of like general and split between Boston and Georgia and Rhode Island and New Hampshire? <laughs> well, I'll answer that. Yes. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kate. Thank you. They go wherever they donate it. So if, they, um, if the products are donated within Massachusetts, they're distributed in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, if they donated in Georgia, they are distributed in Georgia. Um, we we try to operate in a scalable but very economical way. Sending product does not make sense. There is need everywhere. There is need in Georgia. There is need here. So wherever people donate, that's it's going to support their local community. Good. At this point, we're going to probably move into some, some personal questions for you ladies. But before that, is there anything that you wanted to cover about Dignity Matters that we have not yet covered? I think we covered it all. I just would like people and women to, to just reflect on this need and this overlooked need. Um, it's really a very big issue. It's bigger than people imagine. And if you don't want to donate to Dignity Matters, if you don't want to ship products, just go to your local school, just go to your local shelter, just go and just locally find out a little bit more and help because okay. it really stops women from going for jobs, job interviews. It stops women uh, from going to work. Um, it stops girls from going to school. They send home with one pad and they miss classes. Um, so I think we collectively can really help and, um, yeah, just okay. raise awareness of that issue. That would be number one thing. And I would just uh, share just a, a personal thought on, on that as well. I think if, if we're all being honest ladies, we can all think of a time uh, that our period arrived kind of without any of those glorious warning signs that we each experienced. Um, and then what do you do in that, in that instance, right? We ask a friend, do you have something I can borrow? You know, we put money into a machine and we get it. We stop by a store. 
um, the women and teenage girls that we're talking about, they don't have that ability. Um, and when you think about really the nitty gritty of it, these people are having to use, you know, rags and socks and t-shirts and toilet paper wadded up. These are, this is no way that anyone would, that we would ever allow anyone in our, in our personal lives. So we should absolutely do everything that we can to make sure that no woman, no teen is experiencing life and, and their period in this way. Excellent, excellent points. I really, really commend you ladies for what you're doing. And I really hope that from listening to this, people will be inspired to go check out their their local homeless shelter and get involved in this because it is, it's something that affects every woman mostly. So absolutely important. All right. So onto the personal questions. First, I'd like okay. for each of you just to share a little bit of your your background and what your story is, and you can get as in-depth or as not in-depth as you'd like. Um, I, this is Kim. I'm a little bit more of a sharer than Kate is, perhaps. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you a little bit of my story. As you know, I was raised in Boston uh, for the first 30 years of my life, and then through work, moved and relocated and um, lived in Florida, living in Savannah. Um, And I will say that um, while my actual real-life career in healthcare has been a very rewarding one, um, I would say that really the passion of my life is my work in the world of nonprofit. Um, I had an unfortunate experience of losing both of my parents within four months of one another um, eight years ago. And uh, I had a fantastic therapist at the time, and, and one of the best pieces of advice she said to me was, lose yourself in the service of others. And it was some, it was something that I wish I had, had heard 25 years ago 35 years ago, because my work in the area of nonprofit and helping other people, specifically helping women, has been life-changing for me. Thank you. Kate? Well, I, um, I, I'm Polish, and um, I've seen a lot of poverty in my country. Um, I was lucky enough never to experience it myself, but um, the issue of homelessness um, both among men and women and even children, it's not really new to me. It's something I've observed a lot in my home country. Um, saying that, um, for, you know, for the f- first 30 years of my life, I have not been involved um, much in philanthropy or nonprofit world. I was not exposed to it as much as Kim. Um, I worked in professional services and I moved around the world, living on four different continents I've only came to um, US three years ago. I came from Sydney, Australia. And when I came here, as I've mentioned at the beginning of this conversation and interview, I was not planning on um, you know, having a, a nonprofit and running it at all. It, it just came to me as a surprise, as a need. And I was surprised to be surprised um, that there was such need <laughs> And something I've never heard about before. And I guess that took me to, you know, Dignity Matters and my work. 
So both of you, what are your favorite parts of being a woman? These are the standard womankind questions. (laughs) For me, the best part about being a woman is, um, I think, my connection to other women. I have lived in a few different places, and I can say, um, while I never had a birth sister, I have had the fortunate embrace of girlfriends that have lasted a lifetime everywhere I've moved to and traveled to. I've worked in the healthcare industry, which is predominantly female um, run, so it's been um, an empowering journey my entire career to be surrounded professionally by women who were smarter than me or women who needed me to be the smart one and lead them. So I would say the best part about being a woman is being a sister to every other woman. I love that answer. And I hear that answer a lot. That's a pretty common feeling (laughs) for women. Kate, what about you? I, I think I'm going to disappoint you. Uh, because my Never. my answer is not going to be very original. For me, the best part um, of being a woman is being a mother. Uh, I'm a mom to two beautiful children, uh, four-year-old Max and three-year-old Victoria. And at the end of the day, um, they are the love of my life and they teach me patience and they teach me joy and they teach me innocence and they teach me all these wonderful things that uh, we sometimes forget about when we become adults so um, I'm, I'm glad for that I'm glad to be a woman <laughs> I think that's an amazing answer and I actually love when my guests have answers in common because it just shows that you know there is like a spirit and like something that women have in common and so I love that for sure uh, So on the flip side, what are the hardest parts of being a woman, each of you? That's a hard question. It is a hard question. (laughs) That's a hard question. I mean, we're 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 still a minority. You know, we're we're still earning less than our male counterparts. We're still um, expected to be, you know, the person who figures everything out and knows how to do everything magically. Um, and all the while looking beautiful, you know, and, and feeling marvelous about ourselves. So I think there's a lot of pressure on women to do it all, to be everything to everyone else. Um, I would say that's the toughest part. I would, I would absolutely (laughs) echo what Kim said. And, um, I often feel that we have the same ambitions intelligence and education as men um, and yet we still don't have the same possibilities and choices and that's something that bothers me and that's something that goes back to uh, to dignity matters and to making sure that women have the same possibilities that they're treated equally um, that there is a gender equality true gender equality and that we are not punished for being women. Um, so that's something that's, yeah, that's very important to me. Mm-hmm. I like that, that it, we should not be punished for being women. I feel like I need to repeat that. That is an interesting perspective because that is really what, <laughs> what happens a lot of the time. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I know that Kate doesn't like this question, but I'm still going to ask it anyways. And you can answer whichever part you'd like. What does it mean to be a woman in 2017? And or what does it mean to you to be a woman in 2017? Well, um, I don't like this question because I'm not sure about the answer. It really depends on your circumstances. Okay. I don't I don't feel that it is that much different to uh, being a woman 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. Um, as I've mentioned before, we have more choices. Sometimes choice is freedom. Sometimes it's a headache. Um, okay. Without without any doubt, as Kim said, more is expected from us. Mm -hmm. uh, we expect it to be mothers, workers, uh, we expect it to be beautiful and smart and strong, but at the same time being women, and what does it really mean? So I think there is a bit of a confusion <laughs> generally about what it means to be a woman, uh, which is probably why I don't like this question. <laughs> Well, honestly, I started this podcast because I don't have an answer to the question. So yes. now I'm letting all my guests answer it for me. So this is a smart, this, you are a very smart woman. See, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so Kim, what um, does it mean to you to be a yeah, woman? Let's hear Kim's answer. 2017. Well, um, I think, I think, um, I think I, and when I think about this, period of time in history of, of women. I, um, it's funny. I think I, I grew up year. I grew up a, a very little baby feminist. I, I staged my first protest in my driveway when I was age nine. Oh my gosh. I, I love it. What were you protesting? My brother, my brother was making more allowance than I was. He was two years older. Um, and how my father had, had explained it to me was that he was doing jobs that were more difficult than, you know, setting the table and emptying the dishwasher and folding laundry. So I said, well, I don't have access to make the same amount of money and I'd like to. There's no reason why I can't mow the lawn like Michael does. And so sure enough, we ended up after my peaceful protest. Um, we we ended up having equal access to the jobs and each of the jobs having a monetary value. So it was um, it was that that I think um, right now we're kind of revisiting in mm -hmm. in history. You know, we we as a, a minority women need to be asserting ourselves in a way that maybe we haven't in the last, uh, or at least as loud and proud as we have in the last few decades. Um, so I think right now to be a woman um, is both terrifying and thrilling. Wow, at such a young age to be so aware of that, that's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that, that it says anything about my character. It just, I really love to shop even at age nine. <laughs> <I think. Okay. laughs> so maybe you are an entrepreneur, maybe. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to move into stories of subversion, unless there is something that you guys would like to add um, about being a woman or anything that you could speak to about that. It's all you, Kelsey. All right. Um, all right. So we, I know that, Kim, you have a woman that you're going to talk about 
shortly, but I'll, I'll go first here. So uh, the person that I'm speaking about today is Mariah Love. And so I, as I've said, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and Mariah Love was also from Buffalo, New York. Um, and she was a pi- pioneer of social work in Western New York, but also in the world. Um, and so I've been doing some research on her, and there's not a whole lot of information out there about her, which is why I did want to talk about her. Um, and I did find some things that were a little bit um, problematic about her, uh, one being that she was against women's suffrage. Um, but as I read about that a little bit, I I guess it's just a matter of not living in the time and not seeing the sides. To me, that seems a, a bit crazy to be against women's suffrage, but she um, kind of echoed something that we've been talking about today, that she felt that women had so much on their plates already and had so many burdens that just voting would be another thing to add to the plates. Um, And so she was doing a lot despite that. So she was part of the charity organization Society of Buffalo, which was the first of its kind in America, uh, which is pretty interesting. These are organizations that focused on Um, rather than giving direct relief to people in need, focused on um, correcting or working on the cycle of poverty. Um, And so she was part of that organization. And so I thought that was kind of appropriate to bring up today, talking to the Dignity Matters women. Um, And so at one point she traveled to France and there witnessed um, poor working mothers with a need to have someone take care of their children. And so she came back to the United States realizing that there were many women in Buffalo in this precarious position who were single mothers who were working and who had no one to take care of their children. So in 1881, she established Fitch Kresh, which is the first daycare center in the United States and the second daycare center in the world. Um, So, and actually, if you're from Buffalo, the building used to be on the corner of Swan and Michigan, um, but as Buffalo has done with many historical buildings it has been knocked down to put up a parking lot um but mariah love did run this organization um the fitch crash for 50 years um stemming from that she also established a program that allowed children from local orphanages to spend time in nature they would go on two-week trips um, and stay with william Pryor letchworth who was another philanthropist um and after, again, she, she did so much in her lifetime here. Um, after that, after spending 50 years at Fitch Crash, throughout that time, she spent a lot of time in the homes of her clients um, and realized that the strain that being a single mother, being poor, being a working mother had on women and children alike. And so she established a home for convalescent care for both women and children. Um, and so that has kind of evolved into something there's an organization called the Mariah M. Love Convalescent Fund that still is in place today. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute, but um, I feel like she was very important. She's very important to talk about because she laid the foundation for many things in our country today. Um, child care, as it's been set up today, um, taking having a place for people to have their children stay during the day where they're in care, they have good care, um, and having an attitude of rehabilitation, I mean, this isn't something that we have across the board, but just having an attitude of rehabilitation and looking at problems in society as a whole and how to fix them instead of just seeing them as isolated incidents. So I feel like she was ahead of her time on a lot of these things. Um, Also, just another tidbit about her, when she was 84 and retired from everything, she decided to travel around the world. So she's 84 years old in the early 1900s, 
um, just traveling across the United States, Central and South America, Europe and Asia, which is what I hope I'll be doing when I'm 84. Um, she lived to be 91, and she's now uh, buried in Forest Lawn. So if you're, again, in the Buffalo area, you can visit her grave sites. Um, and so to talk just a little bit about the Mariah Love um, Convalescent Fund today, um, they provide financial assistance for, assistance for people who have medical conditions and who are not eligible for other forms of assistance, specifically for people in Erie County, which is where I am right now. Um, so she covers that gap where people who have may have been on public assistance but are no longer eligible um, and have medical needs, she, she, that organization covers um, that gap for them. And so there are a lot of events, and I remember growing up hearing about people going to the charity ball and the luncheon, um, and I didn't know what it was for, but there, now I know that they're for to support the Mariah and Love Convalescent Fund. Um, so that is my story of subversion for today. Mariah Love um, just wanted to give her some more, just give her a little shout out because I haven't seen much about her. So just hopefully people can can take that and learn about her. It's a, um, it's a good story of a subversive woman and she was a definitely smart lady because we, I believe, still have exactly the same issue about childcare. Mm -hmm. If you ask me about what changes I'd like to see for women in the future, I would say... Uh, more childcare because that Absolutely. stops women from going to work, uh, following their Absolutely. career and um, doing more good generally. I mean, it definitely had its flaws, um, but it definitely has laid a foundation for Absolutely. Hope hopefully where we're headed in the next few years in terms hopefully. of childcare. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Kim, does you, who is your woman that you have for story of subversion today? Um, I wanted. I thought I might just talk about my my grandmother, if you'd allow me to indulge you. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and and she's always been a heroine of mine. And I think the older I get, the more I appreciate the woman that she was and the choices that she made that were very unpopular. Uh, at the times in which she made them. My grandmother was born uh, in Nova Scotia and um, came to live in um, Burlington, Vermont. Um, she was born in 1911. So uh, way back when, <laughs> she was married at age 16. Uh, she had dropped out of school at age uh, 12. So um, she had been working on her family's farm, and a, a, a gentleman came courting. And so at 16, it was completely acceptable and, and encouraged for a 16-year-old girl to get married. Her husband, Francis Carey, was uh, 35 years old at the time. So you can imagine how that might, might look in today's society. Mm -hmm. The good news for me, Francis was a wonderful man, um, and together they um, quickly started a family, and um, unfortunately, she was pregnant with her fifth child when her beloved was killed in a hunting accident, um, leaving her very pregnant with a huge farm and four children under the age of six to care for. Um, and so she did the very best she could for several years trying to run a farm. 
um, the gentleman that was um, responsible for accidentally killing her husband was uh, ordered to pay $3 a month in child support, uh, which even, you know, in the, in the 30s and 40s was a tiny amount of money. Um, and she ended up getting a call from a, uh, who was the black sheep of her family then, who said, move to Boston, come and live with me in this one-bedroom apartment with your kids, and I'll watch them while you go to college. She hadn't even finished high school, so she didn't even think that was going to be a possibility. But sure enough, she knew that she couldn't manage that farm and knew that this was not a life for her and for her children. So she packed up and she moved um, down to a one-bedroom apartment in Lynn, Massachusetts, where she raised her family and then did end up going to nursing school and becoming an LPN. Um, I would hear stories from my aunts and uncles about those first years in Lynn Mass and all the things that she would do uh, in order to keep putting food on the table and provide. There were years that they went without actual toilet paper. They would use the phone book. They would use the, they would tear the pages out of the yellow, yellow book and use that instead of toilet paper because it was one less thing they had to, to buy. At the same time, she was a gifted seamstress and so she would go to school and tend to the children. And then at night when she came home, she would hand stitch and alter anyone's pants and tops and blouses in her neighborhood. So providing an additional income for her. When she um, eventually graduated nursing school and was working, she did meet actually a man from her hometown. And that was my grandfather who she married and uh, had my mother. And so the happy ending of her story was that she was able to find a wonderful man, have an exciting and, and um, meaningful career in nursing. And um, she lived to be 91 years old. And um, like, like the story you shared, Kelsey, my grandmother had a massive stroke at 65, lost her second husband at 75, and got her driver's license at 76. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, now so, we know, Kim, where you get your spirit from. <laughs> that is the highest form of compliment you can give, for sure. So when I think about a woman who has been through and persevered and not always conformed, um, my grandmother, Catherine Lamb, is certainly that figure. Oh, that's an amazing story. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it is. All right, ladies, I think we, we have reached the end here. Is there anything else that you'd like to add um, before you tell our listeners again how they can get involved and where they can find out more information about Dignity Matters? Um, sure. Um, if you would like to find out more about who we are, what we do, and how you can get involved, uh, www.dignity-matters.org, dignity-matters.org. Um, we are in um, Wayland, Massachusetts, and in Georgia, Savannah. You'll see it on our website. Um, if you would like to donate um, any items, products, we kindly accept them. You can send them to our PO boxes. Uh, you, can, um, you can drop them off in our permanent drop-off locations. You'll see that on the website. Um, and we hope to hear from you. 
And please, please make sure you follow us on Facebook at us. We would love for you to be able to be aware of what's going on in in our communities. And also there's always inspiration there to be found as well as um, a great way to keep in touch with us and contact us if you see anything um, that resonates with you. I have, I, re I was reached out to recently by a dear friend of mine from elementary school um, who had been, who had liked Dignity Matters as a page. And the more she saw the pictures and the more she read the post, it inspired her to do a collection and a drive in the place where she worked. And she actually just dropped off, I think, about 90 bras to Kate and a bunch of feminine yes. hygiene products. So there, it's a great way to get inspiration, to get ideas on how to become involved. Great. Thank you so much, ladies, for being here. This is a great episode. Um, any listeners, be sure to check out Dignity Matters, their website, add them on Facebook. Um, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Womankind. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. Thank you, Kelsey. Bye. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Thank you. All right. Bye. <laughs>